What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. Andrew Steinwald is the managing partner of Sifermion, an investment firm focused on the NFT ecosystem. All opinions expressed by Andrew and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Sifermion. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Sifermion or related entities may maintain positions in the assets discussed in this podcast. My guest today is Eric Golden. Eric was at Fidelity for 16 years and has recently jumped full-time into Web3. Eric has a wealth of experience from Fidelity, starting as an intern, working up to portfolio manager, and even being able to launch his own business within Fidelity, which became a huge success. Eric is also the host of the amazing podcast Web3 Breakdowns, which is part of Patrick O'Shaughnessy's media network, Colossus. On this episode, we dive into how he fell down the Web3 rabbit hole, how he grew his Fidelity business from $0 to having $18 billion under management, the traditional asset manager business and how it works, hosting the Web3 Breakdowns podcast, why crypto is so alpha rich, how the crypto markets experience full boom and bust cycles in condensed timelines, US security laws and how they can coexist with crypto, and so much more. If you want to learn from an expert in asset management and how Web3 will change the future of finance, then this is the episode for you. Please enjoy my conversation with Eric. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Sure. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am one of those people from TradeFi that is now deep uh, immersed in Web3, which I just you know define as crypto, DeFi, NFTs, the whole space. Uh, my background was I was at Fidelity for 16 years. I actually started there as a junior um, in college and um, worked my whole, <laughs> what felt like my whole life there. It's the only job I ever had um, post-college. I was in the research group as an analyst for 10 years, and then I was uh, able to be promoted to uh, portfolio manager. And eventually I was fortunate enough to start a business for Fidelity, which was the separately managed account business. And it's a esoteric part of TradeFi, but essentially it's managing individual portfolios for people instead of managing a single fund. And why um, I thought that was a really exciting business is before we got involved in fixed income SMAs, it was just notoriously a high variable cost business. You needed a lot of people to manage portfolios. So kind of one of the key metrics there was that every 400 portfolios or so, you have to hire another full-time equivalent uh, to run it. And that didn't scale like a mutual fund where one person can manage hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but my thesis was that through the combination of technology and fundamental um, investing, we could scale that business. And what was really exciting was we started building it in 2015. We launched in 2017. By the time I decided to leave in 21, we grew it from zero um, dollars to 18 billion under management. We had 23,000 clients um, and we ran that with a team of five people. So we really found a way to kind of scale um, fixed income uh, management at a level not really seen before. And also, just like to give you another stat on that, we were doing about 1,500 to 2,000 trades a day, and we only had two dedicated traders. So it was a fixed income product managed across munis, treasuries, mortgages, corporates, um, and just kind of a different way to manage it. Um, and it was a lot of fun building a business. And so I decided to leave uh, in March of last year. And I was always interested in crypto. Um, we can kind of get into where that kind of came from and my views on it. But um, basically, I've been spending the past year just deeply immersed, spending almost I'd say most of my time um, in NFTs, learning more about DeFi and just crypto in general. That's uh, absolutely amazing. All right, so I, I want to go back to your junior year when you were in college. Did you did you know like, oh my gosh, I want to work in finance and Fidelity is is like the bee's knees, or, or what was your thought process back then? Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up uh, outside of Boston, and you know, I was one of those kids who um, wrote a letter to Peter Lynch thanking him because I my parents helped pay for college, but a lot of that money went through you know the Fidelity Magellan Fund, and being in Boston, Fidelity really just represented you know all of investments. Um, you know, I thought I had to go to investment banking before you could make it into you know the buy side asset management um, role, and so. Um, it was always on my mind that I would love to work there someday. I felt that I, I, I originally thought I wanted to be, and I still do, uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, or build businesses. Um, but I thought, I thought that if you could become specifically, I wanted a role that I didn't end up getting, but if you could become, you know, a small cap 
growth manager or small cap value, you would get closer to the founders. So I definitely ascribe to the worlds of Buffett that being a good investor makes me a good business person. Being a good business person makes me a good investor. Um, and so I really like that crossover. So yeah, for me, Fidelity, was, I was one of those weird kids who I definitely dreamed about working there someday. And I was fortunate enough to get an internship, not in the investment division, actually. I was an intern in the corporate finance group. Um, but I was able to convince them to give me a shot on the investment team. That's amazing. And then, and then you spent 10 years grinding as an, as, as an analyst, and then you were promoted to a portfolio manager. And then after doing that, you actually started your own business with Infidelity. That's super cool. I, I didn't actually know that that was possible. But so, like, was it your idea to launch this, this, uh, this individual managed accounts business? Or, or how, how did that process like come to be? Uh, no. Uh, so the, the SMA business is something that had been growing in the industry for years and, you know, Fidelity offers everything. And so, um, it would definitely been a product that had been discussed for multiple years in a row. Um, but like anything, you know, people look at the viability of the business. Does this make sense? And it really was one of those things where, um, I think Fidelity does a great job always putting kind of customer first, like what does the customer want? And it just became too loud of a request that even though, the business model of how other people ran it wasn't attractive. We were still going to do it because it's what the customers wanted. And what I got excited about was I've always thought that for me, um, starting a business or being an entrepreneur, it's all just about solving problems. So here was this need that people wanted and the clear problem was it couldn't be scaled. And so I just became obsessed with, is there a way to scale this um, that hadn't been tried before? All right, so so how is it possible? I, I I can't even like fathom these numbers. But you said you went from zero to eighteen billion AUM, twenty three thousand clients. You had only five people on the team, and you guys were making like between one thousand five hundred, two thousand trades per day. H how is that possible? Like I I can't even like imagine. Um, a lot of hard work from a lot of different people. I mean, I think that the way it started was the concept of. Um, in the equity SMA space or quantitative investing, people had found lots of. Um, clever ways to scale portfolio management. And for a variety of reasons, now, and this actually will, I think, lend itself later when we talk about crypto, most of the entire fixed income market is traded over the counter, meaning there's no exchange. So for example, if you want to buy Apple stock, everyone you know knows how to do that at this point. Um, you know, you've got young people doing it on Robinhood um, on an app on your phone, you buy it, everyone knows the price. But and these these numbers are outdated. But if you wanted to buy, you know, Apple's bonds, there's something like you know seventy to a hundred different QCIPs to buy Apple. If you go to something like General Electric, you get into the thousands. You go to the state of California, even more. One fact I like is that if you look at just J.P. Morgan's capital structure, J.P. Morgan has more fixed income securities than all public equities traded. And so in the fixed income space, you just have a massive amount of information that you're trying to figure out what's available. The second thing that makes fixed income securities kind of weird is that they're created and destroyed in the sense that, you know, every week new fixed income securities are being made, they're being issued, and every day other securities are maturing. So it's a non-static environment of data you're playing with, which just makes it an absolute playground, in my opinion, of you know how to run money efficiently because it's just it's not easy you don't have the s p 500 to say okay i want to buy these stocks now how do i pick them and figure out who's going to outperform the benchmark um in fixed income you've got to first wrangle this massive data problem before you can even start saying i want to manage it in a certain way and so in just in the muni market you know you're talking about millions of securities tens of thousands of different issuers and on any given day there's a lot of illiquidity so you don't even know what's available so you might buy a bond on one day and it's just not available for the next couple of months. So you can't say, okay, for all my clients, I want to buy, you know, X, Y, Z, and I'm just going to keep buying it. That's just, it's not how the fixed income market works. And so it doesn't lend itself to quantitative management at scale, which again, that kind of excites me because it became like when we first started it and I started to, you know, just guess like, is this possible? It really was a question. Like I wasn't sure that this would actually work. Um, the idea was like, could you take the learnings from how equity is managed at scale and port over that from a first principle standpoint, but not necessarily do it exactly how they did it. And that's what I had found is that when equity people came to fixed income, they're like, oh, we have a playbook for this. Inevitably, that playbook would fail because they just weren't as comfortable with the fixed income market. Now, the problem with that is when new knowledge comes to a space, 
there's always this entrenched interest of the people saying, hey, I want to do it a new way. And the people that are existing, there are saying, no, we shouldn't because it hasn't been done that way. And I, and I, I don't like either one of those aspects. Um, if anything, I'm always going to lean on the let's try it a new way. And so I think what, what positioned uh, you know, the team uniquely was that I had a belief that there was a different way to do it. And I was open-minded to try it very well knowing it could possibly fail. So, so were the five people on this team, like, are you guys all quants? Like, how were you able to scale that? Was it all just through computer programs and, and, and coding and whatnot? Yeah. Um, so my, 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 my core partner was a quant and, you know, helped with all the optimization and the backbone of how the system ran. But then the other young people we hired around, it was interesting. Um, some people came with a computer science background. Some people came with a traditional, um, you know, investing background and, it didn't really matter which way you started. I did it both ways as I made hires. Um, you had to kind of learn both. And so I considered my team kind of to have this like Navy SEAL like attitude, like you're going to build your own weapons and fire them. And so you're going to need to, lo- to learn both. So I would tell people, I learned how to code in college, but I was by far the worst coder on the team. Everyone was far superior to me. But one of the first people I hired came with a, a really strong background in investing. Um, he was a star. He could have done anything he wanted, but he learned, you know, he did a lot of courses online. He learned Python. He learned SQL. He learned all the p- the components he needed to be extremely efficient. And with young people, I kind of, to me, it just seems to be a base level of skill that can help any role you're in today. Um, and so they were all in that, you know, people call them traders that code. They weren't all traders, but they were all in this hybrid role of really strong investment professionals that also had a really strong technical background and training. And they could have come to me in different ways. Some people were technically very gifted and I was willing to spend time to try to get them up to speed on the investment process and risk management and how the business would run. And others were really strong on investing and took the time to learn the coding side. That's awesome. Okay. So, I mean, I don't want you, you know, uh, leaking any alpha here, but like, could you describe to me from a very high level how this functioned in the sense of you guys were ingesting all these, uh, all this data about fixed income products, and then you guys were basically buying and selling them based off of like what general signals. And I, I, you probably can't go too deep into that, but just for very high level, can you describe like how this worked? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it really matters the signals of like, you know, what, what you're looking at to manage fixed income. I think that in, in any way, when you're you're managing risk, you know, there's there's pure quantitative investing, uh, which really is an algorithmic model that's that's tuned to numbers and using advanced math to say, if this happens, then do this. Um, that was what I would call kind of black box optimization, where when you get all the way to like artificial uh, intelligence machine learning, you literally do not know or can't explain to another person why it's happening. The theory that I had um, that we kind of ascribed to was what I call clear box optimization, which is it's it's wonky to get into the details and I won't waste the time. But if you start to learn how optimizations work, the actual I, there was a kind of um, I think a lot of people would separate on the portfolio manager. I come up with investment ideas. I think that the Fed's doing this. I'm looking at the economy. It's doing that. My analysts are telling me I, I like this sector. I like this name. There's a lot of pieces that you can put together to come up with a view you have on how you want to position the portfolios relative to the risk that they should be taking. And I kind of call that the traditional side. And then quant was always a backbone of, okay, um, how do I think about this? What do the numbers say? Usually, and sometimes divorced from, you know, practical knowledge of like what's going on. And I think that the, the type of investing that I enjoyed the most is when those teams worked really well together. And you see this a lot in fixed income, especially at places at Fidelity, where quant is much more embedded in fundamental, as opposed to other places where, you know, the PMs are over here, the quants are over there, the quants, you know, spit out reports and say, I think this is going to happen. And the fundamental people will say, well, that doesn't really work because we're not in that part of the cycle or this doesn't make this doesn't fit my model. Um, and so really it's, it's a, it's a, it's a partnership between the two sides. And so what you're doing is try, and, and so to me, the real magic of it all is creating a new language. And then the new language is, let's just say I wanted to be, um, have a position in lower rated healthcare. And I really wanted to be on a specific part of the curve for whatever reason, it doesn't matter like where the signal came from, what the, what the power of the, the, the computational and quantitative side is, it would let me express that view over tens of thousands of portfolios simultaneously without doing it one by one. And so that's really where you got the scale because until you figured out you had this new tool to run money, you would never have thought about it like that. You know, if you were running SMAs, traditionally you'd say, okay, I've got these, these 30 accounts, sent me money, what do they need? Let's look at the problem today. But by using the quantitative side, 
and using optimization, you can look at all your portfolios every day, scour the entire market and be more proactive than reactive and say, where are the portfolios positioned? How far are they away from what my goal is? Whatever my ideas are, how do I best you know, manage them to that today in the most efficient trades possible? All right. So, so you were absolutely crushing at Fidelity and, and you said you decided roughly in, in March of, of 2021, you, you decided to kind of go deeper into crypto. Uh, what was the thought process around that? Because I feel like you know, it's pretty opposite sides of the market. You're in traditional finance, very, very well established. And then you're kind of jumping into crypto, especially NFTs, which are this totally new and kind of weird market. Yeah, so a lot of decisions went into it and, and too long for this this podcast today. But I think that when I decided to leave, I was just, I wanted to figure out where was the area I wanted to spend my time. And crypto was something I had been interested in, but it, it always felt like I just didn't know enough about it, that the peop, everyone that I would talk to that was super smart was spending a lot of their time. And as I dove deeper, it became very obvious to me why I was having that, uh, that feeling and why I think a lot of other people do. This is not something you can do on the side. This market is evolving at a, a, a pace, which I don't think I've ever seen an industry move this quickly. Um, and staying on top of information and what's happening, it, it, it really is a full-time job. And so it wasn't until I left that I realized how much time it took in my dedicating that time. I started to understand what people, what, what, what my smarter friends were very excited about, why they were interested in building in this space. And so then it kind of became, it was a bit of a backwards thing because I had the time I started looking. And once I started looking and diving deeper, I started to understand all the potentials and how impactful all of this technology is going to be um, on the world for decades to come, that it just became obvious to me that this is the place that I want to invest and build in. That's awesome. Okay, so what, what would you say was like the spark of you to initially get interested in crypto and then how do you fall down the rabbit hole of NFTs or, or, or did you kind of fall deeper because of NFTs? So I was at Fidelity from 2005 to 2021. And from 05 to 07, the theme was like, we're not getting paid for the risk. The market's, you know, um, too aggressive. I, I didn't really think we'd buy any risk because it was really a risk off period for us. And then 08, 09 happens, a financial crisis. Um, I learned a lot from that period of time and how the financial system worked and what it would take to bail it out. And so when Bitcoin was first presented to me, um, you know, it was I was being told that um, it was going to replace the reserve currency and this would be, you know, the new economy and then this would be the new dollar. And my original thought, uh, which is similar to a lot of other people, is like that's just never going to work. Like the reason why the dollar is a U.S. reserve currency is because it's backed by the largest military in the world. Um, and before that, it would be backed by gold. So you can't just create this and kind of take over. And I would say that's like obviously one of the biggest regrets of my life of like not digging in deeper and being so um you know skeptical i think that being a skeptic will always sound smarter and being an optimist will make you look like a fool and naive um, at times and so i was so reluctant to kind of open my mind to what they were saying but the argument being pitched to me was like very philosophical and it just didn't make any sense and i felt that i knew enough about the monetary system what had just happened that it had proven that the, there wasn't going to be a, a replacement of the reserve currency. I still don't believe that the reserve currency will be replaced, um, but it doesn't mean that Bitcoin isn't something very different. Um, and there was a guy at Fidelity named Matt Walsh, who uh, someone told me was you know the smartest guy and the person who explained this to some of the top management of like what Bitcoin really was. And I was fortunate that a friend set us up for lunch. When Matt walked me through it years later, I was like, okay, I still don't understand this, but I think Matt is really smart. Uh, Matt Walsh and Nick Carter were both at Fidelity. Briefly, they started Castle Island Ventures. Um, but when Matt explained it to me, I was like, this is a really smart guy who's very thoughtful and he's making a lot of sense. Um, I should you know, invest with them. And like, I, I definitely trusted them. Um, and it was really for me when I read the Bitcoin white paper that the whole world just kind of stopped for me. And the reason was, you know, just going back to my background, if you understand how a relational database works, if you've ever stored something in a database or written a query or done any basic thing, um, you understand how hard it, even if you've just played with Excel and like stored data and then try to do a pivot table and then someone store, like, you know, change the data, you understand that the state of data is hard to maintain. And that the notion that someone had come up with a distributed ledger that would allow the world to do this, it just, it rocks your world. And the way you think about it and starting to process it, I don't know anything else that's been able to come to me. It's not meant to be corny, but that paper and that idea is just the most beautiful thing I've, I've seen. 
um, as, as far as ideas go, it's, it's an original thought to me that I had not really ever thought possible, explained in this eloquent and simple way. Um, and it really just shook me of like, wow, this is a big deal. But then the question became, okay, now I understand what's going on and I was late to the party and I want to have exposure to it, but what, what am I using for evaluation framework? So that kind of became the next part of it of like, okay, I want to have exposure to this, but what am I buying? How do I think about, you know, having exposure to this in a portfolio back to like the professional management side. But that was really the moment was I would say dismissing it in 08, that lunch with Matt Walsh, and then finally reading the Bitcoin paper was what tipped me over the edge. And I would recommend everyone just does the reverse of that. Just read the paper first. Don't listen to what you're reading in the headlines. Actually read the source document and then think for yourself, like, does this make sense to you or not? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you. People, uh, especially mo the vast majority of people, they don't really understand charts and graphs and, and staking and kind of blockchains. But they what they do understand is collecting and sports and kind of, you know, f fun and friendly things. So I, I agree with you that NFTs are just kind, kind of prime for, for mass adoption. So, all right. So, so you went from diving deep into crypto and then diving deep in NFTs. And then at some point you started this awesome podcast, which is called Web3 Breakdowns. And you teamed up with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who has this incredible podcast called Invest Like the Best. He's also like a, a quantitative uh, investor and has his own firm and whatnot. So how did that happen? So I met Patrick back uh, when I was at Fidelity. Um, I was at a conference and people were getting um, starting to understand what we were doing with the fixed income SMAs and how we were scaling the business dif differently. And someone asked me, do you know Patrick O'Shaughnessy? And I said, you know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, but no, I don't know him. And someone gave me one of the best compliments ever, which is you're the Patrick O'Shaughnessy of fixed income, which I, I was flattered by. And they set up a meeting. And when I sat down with him, I wasn't sure what to expect, but he instantly started asking me about all of the, um, questions of how to actually build the thing we had built in a way that made me immediately understand that he was a builder first and an investor second. I don't mean that in a pejorative way towards investors, but to me, I've always considered myself a builder and an investor and they're, and they're different skill sets. Some people have one, some people have both. Um, but to be, to, to do both, you, you understand the markets, but you also understand how to build things. And we kind of, we instantly hit it off. We've been friends ever since talking about all sorts of, um, different things. And so when he asked me like, what are you up to? What are you going to do? I started telling him, um, the crazy world I had been exposed to. And he's like, you should start sharing it. And so I said, I'd give it a shot. And so web three breakdowns was started. That's amazing. And, and I, I mean, from my understanding, it's been a huge success. And even though you, you've just started what, like less than a year ago. Yeah. I think we started our first episode was in November where I came on as a guest and um, Patrick interviewed me about the board API club. And then from there we've had amazing guests like um, Aaron Wright, who is the founder of tribute labs and behind the Lao Flamingo Dow, um, Mike Collier from foundry who runs the largest mining pool um, in the world. And so we've had a really great list of guests and I'm really excited about the guests we have lined up. And the whole point of the, the, the podcast was, um, when I would talk to people and it would never be like, Hey, what are you up to? And I would start telling them, I realized that it's, it's just not an easy industry to understand. And as the um, prices have gone up and the attention has increased, the noise has only gotten louder and it's made it a hard for people to find the signal of what is truth, what is factual. And so I think that there's a lot of people that want to learn about this space, but um, like anything, it's, it, it is a wild west. There are scams. There are a lot of negative things about the space, which can deter people from even trying. But I've always been a big believer of you need to have skin in the game to really understand things. Um, it doesn't mean you have to have, you know, so much money that you're going to lose it and it would be detrimental to you. Um, of course, like the normal disclaimer, none of this is financial advice, but that by getting a little bit of exposure, you can learn a lot. And so to me, the, the the point of the podcast was to try to expose people to all these crazy things that I was learning about and just learn in public like Patrick has done, um, but just focus on the specific topic. That's awesome. Okay, so is, is the crowd that listens to Web3 Breakdowns, is it mostly traditional financial people that are trying to understand this world or, or what is the kind of the audience there? Um, you know, there's probably people that can answer that better than me. I can tell you what I believe the audience to be is probably like me. Um, and the people that reach out to me are, um, typically have jobs <laughs> in finance, venture, tech, um, art, creative types. It's a pretty wide range. Um, they're usually listening to, you know, probably formally listen to invest like the best, or at least listening to podcasts. So they're, 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 
they're clearly curious and trying to learn more. Um, and so I kind of think of it as people that probably aren't crypto native or, or maybe had a little bit of experience, but not that much and are trying to learn more about the space or get a better understanding from people actually practicing in the space, what's going on. All right. So, so I think that, you know, we've been seeing a lot of traditional financial people kind of enter the, the web three and, you know, crypto and NFT space. What are your, what is the broad consensus or, or the general consensus within that world about crypto? Because is, is it still, this is a scam, this is bullshit, or is it like, okay, you know, there is a lot of that stuff going on, but overall, like, I'm very interested. Like, well, how, how do people perceive it? Yeah, clearly, you know, I can't speak for the entire traditional finance uh, uh, industry, but I would say that I think from, there's kind of two perspectives. One is from the business side of owning the company and exposure to risk or being at the senior management level. And one is at the um, employee level. I think if you own an asset management business, um, it's it's a regulatory risk, especially in traditional finance where there's tremendous amounts of um, regulatory compliance. There's know your customer rules and anti-money laundering, KYC and AML. There's just a lot uh, that goes into being a broker dealer, being a registered investment company. Um, and so, or, or being a bank, um, the regulations are really um, a significant part of both the competitive advantage that they have, um, as well as how they operate their business. So you can imagine when someone says, I'm going to lend, I'm going to send money over a trustless network to someone else and try to earn interest on it, the chief compliance officer's head probably explodes and the general counsel is like, there's just no way we can do this type of stuff. So I think that there are tremendous legal and regulatory hurdles to see you know, mainstream, in, mainstream uh, firms enter. That being said, some of the top traders in the world that I you know, am fortunate enough to know, investors, they're probably most of them are, I, I can't really think of any that don't have some exposure in their personal account and are trying to do it on their own while also realizing we're in this transition period where, where there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty, it benefits the people that aren't, um, governed by that. So individuals, obviously, uh, foreign institutions, especially with the amount of US regulation there is specifically. But the United States is the largest capital markets in the world. So there's going to be tremendous demand to get into this asset cl class over time. I mean, that's one of my core thesis thesis is, um, is that this isn't going away. And uh, retail institutions are going to want professional management of this asset class over time. And so it's just a question of how fast do we get there and what are the necessary pieces we need to get in place. Until you see further regulatory clarity, you're going to be in this gray space, which is going to prevent traditional firms from entering in the way that they would be most apt to do it. They might have you know, venture arms or they might be spinning up technology, but actually playing in DeFi, I think we're years away from. So going off that, what do you think that that traditional finance does well that crypto could learn from? Because, you know, a, a lot of people like joke, they're like, oh, crypto is just recreating the old financial system just on like these, you know, different, different with different tech, essentially. But but I, I do think that, you know, that that is partly true. Uh, I, but I think it's like new and improved tech. But also, I, I think that there's a lot of lessons that we could learn. We as in like Web3 web crypto community, we could learn from traditional financial people uh, that, that are actually positive. So. What are some things in your mind that that crypto people could learn from TradFi people? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at you know the the um, SBF at FTX, Dan Metashevsky at CMS, the team at Jump Capital, um, the people entering the space that are trading all have traditional finance backgrounds, and I think that in traditional finance, um, there's different people that enter it, but um, the people that are really interested in finance. Are, are usually agnostic to what's going on. So you're not trading bonds because you have like a strong view on it or equities or, you know, commodities. You, you become um, usually emotionally detached from the thing you're trading if you're doing it right. And you're trying to understand how are these things trading? Where is there an edge? How can I make money? What's the right investment process or risk associated with my clients that I want to get them exposure to? And so it doesn't really much matter what you're trading. Um, and so when people look at crypto, the traditional side salivating. Um, you know, when you look at markets that have wide bid ask spreads, um, the side you can buy, the side you can sell, illiquidity is um, constantly changing, information is constantly moving. That gives a lot of edges to traditional finance people that they're not used to. So, like, something I would tell people is that in traditional finance, it feels like you're smashing atoms at times to generate alpha. 
Like, how do I outperform a benchmark? It is not an easy task. In crypto, you're prioritizing alpha in the sense that there's a lot of different ways to make money right now because the market's so fragmented. There's information asymmetry. There's trading asymmetry. There's things that you can do in the space to make money. And if you find a little pocket, you know, people are doing really well. Not everyone's doing really well, um, but there are ways to make money in this space that I think traditional finance people are super interested in. So I think what traditional finance people are good at is... Um, risk management, portfolio sizing, understanding how to think about risks and balance that against the return potential so that when you're thinking, okay, um, I can put my money over here and generate 200%, you know, uh, and over here I can ger uh, generate 20%, their questions are usually like, can I explain to myself why that excess return exists? Um, it's not that I'm not willing to take that risk, but it doesn't usually come for free. Sometimes there are opportunities that feel... Um, uh, pretty out of sync where you're like, yeah, there's there's probably an arbitrage opportunity. But ask yourself, why are you taking those risks? What are you exposed to before you make an investment? Um, I think in crypto, people move really fast. It's been a, a, as the asset class has grown, especially over the past, you know, 24 months, it's been a one-way cycle. Um, now, people who have been in crypto before <laughs> 2018 have seen uh, complete cycles. They've seen runs, they've seen crashes. You can even see them, I think, developing a risk management background that comes from being an investor. And being an investor is experiencing how um, you know your plan went well, and then you get punched in the face, and you adapt to it, and you learn from it, and you understand, okay, um, next time, or when I see this type of pattern, I'm going to act differently. So I think that traditional finance people have probably just seen uh, more cycles can speak to some of the of the the market dynamics, especially on the financialization of things, of how markets should work, market structure, and also I think what crypto brings that's really exciting is thinking about things very differently. You know, if you're in traditional markets, you're used to the market, you know, opening at a certain time and closing at a certain time. Like technically, the fixed income market is not traded on an exchange. So hypothetically, it is a 24/7 market, and I have seen times where we had to trade on Saturdays around the crisis, but we don't do that. We, we, we open when the bond market, you know, opens around the equity market, essentially closes at the end of the day when mutual funds need to finally strike their prices. There's a cadence to it. And crypto came along and said, well, like, why does it have, why not 24 seven markets? Now, some people might not like that from a, you know, a work life balance, but why, why not? If there's information about a company, um, that happens on a Friday. You know, there was a company um, that might be acquired, and on Saturday or Sunday, you hear someone might be acquiring it. That's that's market moving information, but the whole world's waiting for the Monday open. Is that really the right way for risk to be transferred, or would it make more sense for you know all securities to be traded twenty four seven? I think there's pros and cons against it, but I really like seeing people in crypto pushing new market structures that were more academic in the past, and seeing what they do with you know moving around assets. Do you have any concern at all that the Web3 world is is recreating a lot of the same issues that TradFi has? And like, do you, do you think it's going to be just like a, a similar situation where there's some people at the top and they control like all the power and it's it's kind of we're recreating the same problems, just, but, but, but with just different tech? Is, is that any concern to you at all? I think it's a concern and I hope not. But I also think it's part of the growing pains that. Chris Dixon has this view about skeuomorphic changes that uh, the example he gives is when Apple released the um, the bookstore, there was a, an image of a bookshelf and you took the book off the shelf because that's what people expected. And now we're very used to a little um, icon. You click the book and, and you enter the book. So I, I consider it a transition bridge phase where it's very normal for humans to say, where did value accrue before? I want to, you know, um, be valued. How do I create it? But you know, it, it's pushing on this combination of traditional web two and this notion of what would happen if open source business models had a better economic structure. So the, 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 I'm not an expert in open source. I'm trying to get smarter on it. But when people look at open source, the idea is, okay, you have all these developers contributing to something like Linux. Is that where all the value accrued? Um, and how do open source models make money? And so the one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, you usually have an open source and then someone takes that open source and sits on top of it. Like OpenSea is on top of an open source protocol, but OpenSea is, is you know, generating all that value because the listings are off chain. They run a matching engine of some sort. They're dealing with customers. So like that's the business isn't the open source protocol, protocol it's based off of. It's accruing to the company on top of it. 
Um, and I don't, and I think there will be companies like that. I think it's hard when you think about being an entrepreneur to say, I'm going to go try to hire a team, do all this work. Where does the value accrue to? And I think that's the most important question. So am I nervous? I mean, I don't know if it's, it's nervousness. I'm just curious and unsure of how it will play out. I'm excited to think that new technologies open up new business models that we weren't previously aware of. So I don't know if people pre-internet really thought there would be companies that had such high gross margins um, on these businesses. Like if you told someone this would exist in the future, I'm not totally sure that they would say, oh yeah, someday we'll get there. Um, or that when the internet came out, the people that were like, we're going to be streaming media or me and you are going to be talking seamlessly like this. There are some people that really understood the technology early, but I think it's the technology gets created and then we as a society find ways to harness it and create new things. And that's what I'm most excited about. So I'm not, I mean, I know what the concern is that, you know, all the power will accrue to a few um, companies or a few people. Um, but I'm not, if they create a lot of value for the world, then I'm okay with that. Um, it's not something I, I worry about. All right. So, so how does, the U.S. regulatory environment and Web three coexist. I, I just feel like there's it's so they're so at odds with each other. And also, like I guess even going back, I don't I don't know if you have any answer to this, but like why do security securities laws exist? Like why can't people just buy and sell securities? I feel like it's it's a relatively harmless thing compared to you know the the government allows us to like play the lottery or like you know get, like yeah just gamble as much money as we want. But when it comes to, like buying a certain investment, oh you need, you need to be accredited. You need to have a certain net worth. Um, so. I guess just like both those questions, like can the U.S. regulatory system and Web3 coexist? And also, why do these laws exist in the first place? I believe they will have to exist. Some, I, I mean, I, I, it would be upsetting to me if somehow the U.S. passes such strong regulation that we lose this technology to another nation. That, to me, would be... Uh, that That is something that worries me, but I don't... I, I'm just an optimist, and I think that we'll find a way for this new technology to exist in a regulatory framework. I don't believe the crypto industry has done a really good job educating officials or regulators on this space, but I think they're doing a great job now. I think that it was something they realized, you know, maybe a year or two ago. I know that people have been working on it, but that when you would hear politicians talk about it, you know, when the infrastructure bill came out, the small section in it affected crypto. And it was, you know, measured in the billions, but it was a trillion dollar bill. And the crypto industry held that build up. To me, that was an amazing moment that politicians realized this is a very loud um, contingency of people that has a very vested interest that want to see this happen. So I think that crypto is doing a much better job educating regulators and trying to help them get up to speed. It's the same problem we started with, right? Um, if you don't understand the space and it seems, you know, very opaque to you, where do you even start on how to regulate it? I, I don't, I don't envy the regulator's position. It's a really hard role to be in, but I do believe we do need thoughtful regulation on the space. Um, on securities law, as much as I'm a proponent of wanting to update it and wondering about accredited investor rules and all of why I think regulation can get better, I do think that if you take a step back and try to just think about it from their perspective, um, if you have no regulation, you know, and you see this in Web3 or crypto or NFTs, right? There's a lot of scams. Every day there's another scam, there's another rug, meaning, you know, you put money into something and they take it away from you and it just disappears. Um, is that really how you want modern society to work? That when you go to a bank or you do a transaction, you're not really sure if you're going to get the good or service that you believe it just disappears. And so it was, I believe, I mean, I didn't write it and haven't studied it like deeply on the history of it. But when you read the regulation, like a lot of it, it started with a good intent that you're trying to prevent people from being taken advantage of, that you don't want scams. I look at things like um, um, annuities. If you try to read about an annuity, it is some of the most complex language in the world. And people have tried to pass regulation to say, hey, this is what, try to explain this in clear language. But the problem is when the complexity of the product is so hard for the average person to understand, there's likely to be rife with scammers and bad people also taking an advantage of it. So you have this good and bad thing. Now, I believe that the scamming, money laundering is is dramatically overplayed by the media because it gets good headlines. And you see a lot of that, excuse me. Um, you see a lot of, um, the, let me just repeat that. I believe that the scamming and the, um, 
money laundering is overplayed by the media because it gets headlines and clicks. I do not believe that's the majority of what's going on right now in the space. But is it going on? Absolutely. Are there bad actors? Absolutely. Could regulation help that? I believe so. But it's going to have to be crafted in a way that they they learn about an entire new space and are thoughtful that over-regulating it would stifle the innovation, which I think most of the builders and investors, are. that's the area they're most concerned about. So I'm excited to see these groups forming that are well-funded to try to help um, politicians and regulators understand where the real risks are to write smart regulation to the best of their abilities. So what do you think about the, the like when you know traditional financial firms are, are like starting to enter the space? And, and we've seen this with, I mean, jump trading has been involved in, in the crypto space for a number of years now, and they just absolutely dominate. I, I've, I've heard, uh, is probably not true, but I've heard that they're responsible for like upwards of 50% of all trade volume or something like that within crypto. And uh, they not only dominate traditional markets, but they also are seem to be dominating crypto, especially with their recent save, saving of uh, Wormhole, which was that $316 million hack. They came in, they just paid up, paid, paid, you know, they put in the money, their own personal money, put it up and said, hey guys, no worry, like we're, we're going to make this all good. So uh, what, what do you what are your thoughts on when tra- like actual big firms like Citadel and Renaissance Technologies when these guys enter crypto like what's going to happen to the to the environment to you know to to, to the markets broadly? Uh, well, it'll be a lot less fun for people like me because they're um, really good at what they do and they drive bid-ass spreads to a much tighter level and offer a lot more liquidity. Not all times, but in general, when the markets are functioning, um, they take a lot of the inefficiencies out because they've got some of the smartest people in the world trying to figure out how to get them. Um, on people like Jump, I don't know the Jump uh, team. I've only heard good things. I mean, you don't have to be an analyst to realize that if someone plugs a $300 million hole, they are doing really well in the space. <laughs> so I I think that as impressed as I was um, with the funding, it just made me think, wow, these, this must be an incredible firm that is obviously fully committed and making a lot of money um, in the space. So I think that, I think we're, we're still probably like, I just, this is completely guessing, but two to five years away at a minimum of like this Goldilocks period where if you have the time, energy, and skill, you could probably still make money before a lot of the big guys come in. Like when I hear Citadel or Rentex involved, that's not a market I want to play in. The reason why I liked NFTs is it seemed to be this new nascent market that people didn't know much about. And so as a, you know, a curious investor, you, I always want to go where people aren't going. I don't want to swim with the great whites and figure out how to make money there. That's that's really hard, and I don't want to fool myself and think that you know I've got more quantitative horsepower than Rentec. Um, but you do want to find places where you think that you could potentially find an edge where you might be able to know um, how to you know make some money in the market. And so I'm going to continue to look where other people aren't looking. So I'll be bummed out when they show up, and I have no doubt eventually they will in all forms, but I do think we're a ways away. So I, I 100% agree that they will definitely show up to crypto, but do you think that you know these big shops like Citadel and Rentec, will they get involved in NFTs? Like, will they be trading cool cats and board apes? I think they will, but NFTs will be far bigger than board apes and cool cats. I think that um, the market right now is still in an experimentation toy phase with massive speculation. So there is no financial model to value these things and say they generate this much cash flow. You're dealing with luxury goods and that market's very big as you've pointed out. Um, and I can see it growing to that. Um, but I can see it growing a lot bigger than that. I think that the blockchain and NFT technology or tokenization, whether it's an NFT or a fungible token, has the ability to create a whole world of new assets we never thought possible to trade before. And that when you do that, even though they might be less liquid than you know a US equity, they're going to have enough liquidity that people are going to trade them. And so you're going to have markets for all these different asset classes we never thought possible of trading before, which will definitely get the attention of all trading firms, investment firms, um, in my opinion. So it's it's not that they're going to, I wouldn't just say, okay, what does the NFT market look like today? When is, you know, Renaissance going to run their board eight blue chip portfolio? I think that that's still early innings, but I do believe that as the NFT market expands, the opportunities to trade things will expand, which will get all of their attention. All right, so so you mentioned like you, you think that in the NFT markets we're kind of in still this experimental phase, which I totally agree with. But what are your thoughts? I guess more in detail on the current state of the of the NFT markets in terms of I guess we'll call it valuations and and whether it be in the 
you know, private markets, like a NFT company raising capital, or whether it be the actual NFTs themselves? I mean, I think that the, the, I look at it, I mean, at first I was kind of thinking about it from a framework of just risk assets that you had growth equity, then you had crypto, and then you had, you know, DeFi and then NFTs and NFTs were kind of furthest out the risk spectrum, mostly because the illiquidity premium isn't fully realized. And this is what reminds me a lot of the bond market is that you have a tremendous amount of NFTs. I think there was like, someone was just adding the open sea list. And I think it was like 1.4 million different NFTs, which sounds a lot like, you know, the bond market. Um, and they're priced at a certain number. So you have to say like, what's this worth? So people are looking at floors, which are just, you know, offerings of listings, but that doesn't mean it's actually where it would trade. So like, just as a thought experiment, if you took any of the collections, which did you mention, like the cool cats, if you took all of the cool cats and tried to sell all of them on the same day, or even a large portion of them, you're not going to get the floor price just because that's where people list them. Now, when the markets are orderly and one to two are trading every hour or so, yeah, it can handle those prices. And that's kind of like what we've seen um, in the NFT space. Now, those numbers are surprising. You are getting tens of millions of dollars of liquidity every day, which I definitely think has surprised people to the upside of how much money is going through them every day. Um, but they're illiquid. And so I think that you need to factor that in of when you own this thing, if you're looking at your floor prices or your trade floors even more and saying, okay, I have like this portfolio, it's worth X. You definitely want to be haircutting that in your mind of what it's really worth if you needed to liquidate the whole thing. Because you're still in a market where these things are only worth what someone's willing to pay for them. And it's not known of what could possibly happen or which direction they could go. Um, and so when I, my, my framework for the, the NFTs I own um, are things that I obviously I really enjoy first. Um, that's definitely a quality of like, would I want to hold some of this stuff? But then when you're speculating in them and you're like, okay, do I want to trade this or do I think it's worth more? I'm usually looking for how much momentum from how, you know, and it, and it really is much more intuitive than it is quantitative. There are quantitative things you can do with, you know, listings and trading data, but in general, like do people seem to really like these things? I mean, it's hard to explain to someone when, and, and you would know this, Andrew, but like when you're on Twitter and you see what looks like a pump, but you, you and people are really talking about a, a new project and you think it's worth a lot of money and you're like, this just doesn't feel organic. The people that I know have never heard of this. The people that have been training this have never heard of this project and there's 400,000 people in the Discord. There's only, you know, 300,000 OpenSea wallets. Where did the other 400,000, you know, where did the 100,000 people come from that are all into this project? So, you know, um, I think it was... I think it was Ari at Block Tower who gave me this quote, which is like, in a, in a bull market, your key job is to avoid scams. And so what it really becomes is when you look at a project, is it scammy or not? But then what I'm looking for is um, how they're intending to use the NFT. What is the group of people around it? Are they innovating? Are they playing with it in an interesting and fun way to learn from? That's usually what gets me excited about participating in a project um, more than, you know, it's the hype of the week and it's got a bunch of trading and, and it looks like the floor is going to go up. So, so are, are NFT markets in their current state just not really susceptible to quant strategies? And like even looking forward to the future, like how do you quantify, you know, people liking something? I mean, besides like Twitter likes and whatnot, but because I feel like people have been trying to make uh, quantitative art funds forever. And it just, you know, they, I, from my knowledge, they haven't really performed that well because uh, it's, it's, it's so, these things are so subjective in value. And so do you think that going forward, uh, and I know NFTs will evolve like into IP and insurance and like all this different stuff, but just in terms of like what the market is today, will, will going forward, a lot of the, uh, especially collectibles and art uh, NFTs, will they continue to be dominated by people that are just really in tuned and like have a good feel? That would be my instinct. I think because, you know, th th this, is, this echoes a lot of traditional finance, which is trying to separate skill and luck which is really hard. How do you know you were good at something versus got lucky? How do you know that the benchmark that you were going against just wasn't really easy to beat? Um, how do you how do you think about, and a lot of these ways, if you've ever managed money or paid someone to manage money, that's the best thought experiment to, to do here. If I give you a million dollars to invest and a year later, um, you know, it's worth a million five. Did you do a good job or not? There's so many other questions that you have to understand what market we are in. Was it alpha? Was it beta? Um, and, 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 this, and, 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 and how do you think about the skill part of it, which is really hard. 
when people try to apply quantitative strategies, which has been a big driver in traditional finance, in my opinion, what that's suggesting is that the intuitive part of risk management of this is the pattern I see can be coded. I think that there are firms that do that really well and they're 100% dedicated to it has to be, you know, um, quantitatively driven. It's just also not my personality style that I would ever hand it over 100% to the computers for two reasons. If you're in a market that you can hand over to the computers 100% to do your job, I'm not sure what value you have as a portfolio manager or risk manager or analyst anymore when it's pure, pure quant. Now, there are versions of it that are you know, um, fundamental enabled quant where you're saying our analysts have these ideas and this is how we're working on risk or, or weighting. But in the NFT space, you know, you're dealing with... Um, an area that's clearly, you know, speculatively driven momentum trading. This isn't something, could you apply quantitative techniques? You could, but then the problem that traditional finance would have is how much money can you actually put in the market and how liquid is it? Um, and so I think that it's better in the current state, the NFTs you're talking about, the the art blocks, the uh, generative art, the PFPs, the stuff that are, have got most people's attention right now, that is a that is a, as equivalent to buying Rolexes or Gucci bags um, or art or wine. It is a, a luxury good that doesn't generate cash flow in its current state for a variety of reasons, um, not uh and specifically securities law, but it doesn't generate cash flow. Um, and so you're able to say like, okay, I think this is something that people are going to want. Celebrities like this, or this is a popular part of culture. And so you're betting on something different than you would ever consider in kind of a quantitative model. All right. So when you look at the markets today, uh, especially like the, the gaming and virtual land market, do, do you, do you, do you separate those, those specific sub markets from the sub markets of, uh, collectibles and art, because in essence, maybe uh, the virtual land and gaming arts can potentially generate yield. Yeah. So um, it's a really good point. And I'll just tell you my personal opinion, and this is just how I've experienced it. I never got into land, but I am a huge fan of the gaming side. I'm very curious about what gaming could do on land. Um, I played Second Life. I forget what part of, I forget when Second Life came out, but it was a virtual metaverse world. Patrick actually did a great podcast with um, Gurley and the founder of Second Life that's worth listening to. It just talks about how hard it is to create a, a virtual world where everyone can um, come and play. And the thing about it um, is, let's just say we're going to, even if you had all the technology to render all the best graphics, it would be a 3D. For a virtual world to work, you have to go there and be there. What I've learned about NFTs and how we're all transferring information, like I call the metaverse Twitter, Discord, Telegram, is it's all asynchronous information, meaning you can leave me a message, I can come back and read it, you can read it when you want, it's when I'm bored, I can check my phone, I don't have to be available. Even Twitter spaces are a commitment because we all have to be there at the same time to talk, which is fun because it's a, it's a version of like, okay, I wanna talk to everyone, but if I'm missing a point in a virtual world, if I'm not there, I don't get to experience it in the same way. So I've just been a little bit more skeptical and just haven't been bitten by the virtual land bug, even though obviously it's done really well as an asset class. Um, in gaming, um, I just talked to Geo at Axie. I learned a lot of their perspective of gaming. And, you know, I think play to earn was... Uh, it was mind blowing. Like th that was a great example of like, I can't believe that this exists now that we have this new technology, but I think that it's a new form of gaming that when you say play to earn versus play to play and earn, those are loaded topics for people because now you're comparing playing this video game to a job. And do I want to do this versus not do this? And are people coming to play the game for fun or are they just coming to play the game for money? I mean, to me, you can trade stuff. That's a game and you can make money off of it. You can play a video game. There's very strong similarities, but I think there's a couple of reasons why we're seeing traditional gaming communities rail against NFTs. One is the environmental concerns that they seem to raise constantly. Um, but the other is that they're there for to play the game for fun. And the introduction of money definitely changes it. It's the same thing with art. When people tell me that they don't collect art for money, they just collect it for the art, that's totally fine. They wanna support an artist, they feel something. But if there's going to be a marketplace for that or the artist to make money, I'm also totally okay with that. Like I don't, I try to be less emotional about this financialization of everything being such a negative thing. I think that there's lots of consequences to it. There's lots of consequences just being on your phone for 12 hours a day, independent if you're trading anything. Um, and so 
I just try to think about, okay, if that's the direction people are going, if they're going to spend more times on their phone, if they're going to spend more times in digital places, what are potential ways that that could impact the markets and how people act? So the digital land is clearly a version of, I want to go you know, experience a different universe. Um, and so I, I see the play there. I'm just, I have more questions um, that have kind of held me back. Gaming is a, a really interesting form of yield because you're saying, okay, we're turning this financial market, whatever we're doing, into gaming. So um, I joke with my mom about this because she was a big player of Farmville. And she had a lot of friends on it and played it all the time. And we just thought it was such a silly waste of time. Now, my mom would kill it at NFT gaming today because that's what you're doing. And she could make money off of it and have friends. And that would be potentially a better use of time, but who am I to say what's a good use of her time? You know, when I was a punk telling her Farmville was a waste of time, she got a lot of enjoyment out of it. If you can add an economic part of that and someone who's retired could be playing a game on their phone and generate a little bit of, you know, income on the side, I think that's a wonderful thing to explore. I love that. Awesome. All right. All right. So do you have any thoughts on like the recent decorrelation of crypto and NFT markets? Because I felt like in in January, this was displayed in a pretty big way, where the crypto markets were generally just kind of bleeding down, and uh, NFT markets had you know printed their their highest volume month ever, and it seemed like a lot of the quote unquote blue chips were, were really you know increasing in value heavily. So uh, you know my, my thought process around that is okay, well NFTs are not pure financial assets; these are emotional status, social kind of you know assets that people want to buy and sell for different reasons other than just financial gain. Um, but I, you know, that's my thoughts overall. I, I haven't done any kind of digging into this, but what do you, what do you think? Like, why do we see that, that decorrelation and do you think going forward that'll continue or do you think over time that they'll get more correlated? Um, so I didn't expect it. It's definitely been happening. Um, and the funny thing is if we recorded this in December, we'd be having the complete opposite conversation, right? So it's just amazing how like two months changed the narrative of what's going on. Um, I would have thought that when the Fed pivoted to, you know, raising interest rates, that the riskiest assets would get hurt. And so I had a thesis that growth equities would be the first thing to go. But then what would happen, that's not really a strong thesis. I think everyone was expecting that part, not to the severity it happened. But if the Fed pivots, the things that have been benefiting the most from low interest rates should get hurt. I thought that crypto assets would kind of hover for a little bit and people would be talking about, you know, decorrelation. And my going into it was that's a good time to sell because there's no way this is going to decorrelate. And likewise, if crypto got hurt, NFTs would get hurt as well. So the first two parts of that were right, that when the Fed got more hawkish, risk assets got hurt, specifically growth equity and crypto, but NFTs didn't. And I think it's more of a head scratcher than I can just, I mean, I'm just speculating on why. Um, that like all of this stuff, there's just a supply demand um, imbalance where even though people are creating more supply in general, I would say most of the new supply is uninteresting. Um, and it's not like Top Shot where Top Shot is a brand and every supply it issues takes away from the existing demand. There's supply all over the place and there's only a certain amount of the projects that seem to either garner decent sizes of community or you know money attracted to them. And so my only guess is that we're still in this onboarding mechanism of more um, retail um, coming in, opening wallets, buying NFTs, participating. And they're not looking at that as part of their portfolio. Whereas if you've got Bitcoin and institutional portfolio and per, you know you see that there's a risk off trade, it's a liquid asset you can trade 24 seven in size. It's a good place to go sell in advance of the equity market opening. And that's why I think that one makes more sense that it will become and continue to become more correlated, which is a good thing. It means that the asset is being adopted into traditional finance and it's being accepted as a real asset class. The reason why it's not correlated is if it does something special specifically, which I know there's strong arguments for, or not a lot of people who own traditional assets also own it. So it's a crossover between those two. Um, I think NFTs right now are considered in a, just a different category. Um, I'm, uh, I would be hesitant to say like it's going to decouple, and if if the stock market you know were to tank and we go into a recession, that your NFTs are going to perform well. But they're definitely holding up far better than I would have expected. And my only intuition right now is that demand continues to outpace like the viable supply that people wants to own. Love that. All right. So what is the the this you know big grand vision? Like what, what, everything that you're working on now, where do you want to take this? Like let's say five ten years from now, where do you want to be? 
I would love to know that answer. I don't know. Um, and so I think that I know that I want to be working. I, I tell people this all the time of like, what am I up to? And it's like, you know, I've, I, I want to work with the people that I enjoy working with on a problem we're solving that um, I think is, 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 has economic upside and, and kind of in that order. And I keep meeting such amazing people in the crypto NFT DeFi space, um, doing all sorts of really cool, exciting things. Um, I'd be surprised if it wasn't in some sort of markets or exchange or, or, or financial setting. Cause that's my background. Um, but I also love the idea of building something that helps, um, onboard this new technology. I was never, I have a disdain for people using technology in search of a problem specifically. So, you know, there was a phase where everyone wanted to just just move everything to the cloud or c computing just because we have it or um but it wasn't it wasn't thoughtful or like let's use artificial intelligence, can we use machine learning? And it's not that those aren't amazing technologies, but if you're just using the technology for the sake of using it, that doesn't just I don't like that. I'd rather say, hey, I learned about this new technology and this other problem I'd been thinking about that we couldn't previously solve or didn't have a good way to solve it. This might help us. And to me, I think NFTs represent one of those opportunities where after you start to play with them, you start to think about, okay, we have a new way to store information, new way to trade assets, new way to raise capital, to coordinate. Um, this is going to unlock a, a, a lot of different things. Um, and so I don't think there's a currently a grand vision beyond continuing to want to learn as much as I possibly can and think about all the cool problems um, that could help people and where we might be able to use this technology to solve those problems. Love that. Love that. Awesome. Eric, are, are you ready for the closing questions? Oh, sure. Awesome. All right. What is your favorite NFT that you own? Ooh, um... I mean, I was gonna say my board eight because I've used that as like this persona for this whole time, but that's kind of lame. Um, probably a cryptodes that one of my, my one of my children picked out. Oh, I love it, cryptodes, love it. All right, what is your most controversial thought relating to crypto or or NFTs? Um, my most controversial thought is that a lot of this is um, trying to avoid securities law. That by saying stuff governance token and has no value is a dangerous place to be because I do worry about, well, what does that, what were the people buy that? Is that, do they really think that or do they think the values are accruing to them? So I think, I don't know if it's that controversial. It's just that I believe I'm, I'm wildly bullish on the space and what's possible, but I'm not yet certain on what's the best way to invest or play in the space. Like what's the best way to express that view still remains an open question to me. Is it to own L1s? Is it to own DeFi? Is it to own NFTs? Is it to participate in all of these things? I still am not sure, even if you knew or had really strong views of how this was going to play out, what's the best way to express that view from an investment standpoint. Love that. All right. If you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the crypto slash NFT ecosystem, what would it be? Uh, the communication. I mean, I love Twitter and I mean, and I wasn't on Twitter. I got on Twitter uh, during like my professional investment career to analyze information to see what the president was tweeting about. Um, so I was not like a big user of social media. Um, I remember one of the meetings, this is embarrassing, but I'll share it because I feel like it's, it's just your ego, is I was meeting with Kevin Rose and he couldn't be kinder and he asked me what my Discord handle was and I had no idea what Discord was. And so it just wasn't something I grew up on. I wasn't a gamer. So like the Twitter, Telegram, Discord stuff, the amount of communication, I do. I am really excited about having some sort of decentralized communication platform for this whole world to work on. Um, I think that there's just so much power in connecting this this community. Um, so I, I'd love to see someone, I'd either love to see one of the existing platforms understand that and make a more NFT crypto friendly space, or more likely someone from the crypto NFT space to make something that makes more sense for pseudonymity, for censorship resistance that people can communicate on. All right. Who is someone that you, that you look up to and why? Um, so I really look up to Chris Dixon. I know that not everyone's a huge fan of him, but I he writes in such a clear way that makes me think about what the space could be and connects to materials and just has been a huge provider of information that that's someone I really look up to. Love that. All right. Last question. Where do you see the NFT ecosystem in three years? I see it uh, wildly different than exists today. 
I do believe um, well, this was an original thought. I think it was Mike Novogratz who told me that like someday my healthcare records will be on an NFT. Um, my search history of what I'm interested in will be in an NFT that I could potentially plug into an algorithm. That's an idea I've been thinking about. Um, I think that the type of information stored and moved as well as transacted with NFTs will be wildly different than it is today. And some of the assets we look at today, we'll look back on with regret of like, how did we own these things? They were so silly at the time. And other things will be like, oh my God, I could have bought that thing and it became worth a lot more money. Um, and so I just believe it will be wildly different. And I'm just excited to see all the builders and creators and what they're gonna produce over that time frame. Love it. Love it. Eric, this has been an absolutely awesome conversation. I, I love diving into your background at Fidelity and, and your, your deep experience there. And also the, the that entity that you started there is, is just extremely cool. And hearing about how you dove deep into crypto and NFTs is also super inspiring. And, and obviously, huge fan of Web3 Breakdowns. Looking forward to just more episodes there. If people want to find out more about yourself, find out you know, where, where to connect with you, where should they go? What should they do? Sure. So the, the podcast is on joincolossus.com and it's called Web3 Breakdowns. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Golden X. Um, yeah, those are the, probably the best ways to get in touch with me. Um, Andrew, it's been a lot of fun. I, I should have said this earlier. Um, I remember when we first met, I was talking to Roham about like, this is like a new asset class and can we invest in it and, and can people build funds? And he, and he told me to connect with you. And I remember hearing your story of how hard you had fought to create like these, these NFT direct funds. And I just thought it was amazing because it, it looked like one of those problems that was really hard that I would get excited about, which I am. But the stuff you did to get your fund off the ground and keep going and persevere to see all the success you've had, I just think it's an awesome story. Um, and I'm excited to, to watch it grow in the future. Amazing, man. Thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate it. That, 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 that's awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.